I became friends with Carmen in law school. Carmen shopped with a vengeance, talked like Sofia Vergara, and apologized for nothing. For example, in class one day, our friend Stephanie told Carmen, it's really hard for me to concentrate when you smack your gum like that. Carmen responded, oh, that's so interesting. It doesn't bother me at all. Hello, and welcome to Personal Disclosures. I'm Nancy Beckett, and I'm your host. Eight people signed up for one of my humorous writing classes here in Chicago at the Second City Training Center, where I've taught for more than 15 years. They entertained the hell out of each other, bonded and shared secrets they'd never told anyone. And now they're revealing their truth to you. These stories have so much meaning and quality because they are written. I mean, people are a huge pain in the ass, generally speaking, myself included, and they'll bore you to death if you let them. But in these episodes, what you'll discover is how interesting people actually are on paper. It'll surprise you, and you're going to want more. So please, go to our website at personaldisclosures.com. See more of us. Tell us what you think. And disclose some of your own truth, why don't you? Okay, so here's how it's going to go. After one person reads a personal disclosure, we're going to riff, we're going to cross-talk, we're going to get crazy and funny, and contradict each other, and then we're going to move on. You're not going to know who's talking in these commentaries. That's okay. There's nothing you're going to miss. Just listen to the things that people say to one another as writers in a room reading together. And after a couple of episodes, you'll know who we are. This episode is Stranger in a Strange Land, Getting Lost and Found Far from Home. This is Julie Bashkin, the executive producer. We are just real people telling our own true stories. Most of us are not professional writers, and most of us have only recently started learning how to capture our memories. We have developed a fun program that allows everyone to very easily capture their own memories and extract meaning from their life experiences. Go to personaldisclosures.com forward slash gifts and give your loved ones the most personalized and meaningful gift, the ability to capture your family story and leave behind a legacy. We'll even put it all together for you in a customized book. We tell our stories because our friends and families told us our stories entertained them, inspired them, and helped them make sense of their own lives. And we know everyone deserves to be heard and has a story to tell. Go to personaldisclosures.com forward slash gifts. And now back to the podcast. Kenley is by far and away the stupidest, stupidest smart person I've ever met. I mean, she exceeds my stupidity, and that's not easy to do. She has two master's degrees and a law degree, and honestly, it's a miracle how she even gets to work in the morning. So this woman is a set of contradictions. She is a culturally crossed person. She's a vegan and queer as a $3 bill and uh, overeducated in a sense. And she comes from this conservative Christian background and for the most part, just a love muffin. That's what she believes in. And in a way, she lives for creativity. That really is her home. And otherwise, I think of her sometimes as a waif who knows 
a thing or two. She's got a point of view for days. She knows exactly what she's mumbling about. The Amazon hashtag, the rainforest, not the website. I became friends with Carmen in law school. Carmen shopped with a vengeance, talked like Sofia Vergara, and apologized for nothing. For example, in class one day, our friend Stephanie told Carmen, it's really hard for me to concentrate when you smack your gum like that. Carmen responded, oh, that's so interesting. It doesn't bother me at all. (laughs) She got engaged during her last year of law school and started planning a bachelorette party. She invited me, three other girls from law school, and two pre-law school friends. I think we all expected it to be somewhere like, I don't know, Phoenix or Las Vegas. So we were all pretty shocked when she informed us that the party would be in Colombia. You know, like the one in South America. She told us to pack only our nicest dresses so that we would impress the locals in Cartagena. This was pretty much the exact opposite of the advice I'd read on the State Department's travel advisory page, which (laughs) cautioned American tourists going to Colombia to avoid standing out, wearing anything flashy or expensive, or doing anything that would attract the attention of locals. I told Carmen, and before I could even stop talking, she said, I want their jaws to drop. We spent the first few days of the trip in Cartagena. Those days were fairly uneventful, except that Carmen didn't show up. (laughs) Anna got typhoid fever. Then Carmen decided, when she did show up two days later, that we should really take this bachelorette party to the next level. Forget five-star restaurants and VIP-only clubs in Cartagena. Let's go to the motherfucking rainforest. (laughs) Several of us expressed reservations, chief among them the frequent abduction of American tourists by guerrilla troops in the Colombian rainforest. (laughs) Again, something I'd read about on the State Department's travel advisory page. But Carmen brushed off the concerns and insisted, it will be worth it. Think of the Instagram pictures. Her argument was ironclad. We headed into Santa Marta, a much more rural part of the country, and we're talking like super rural, like no roads, and the area was primarily inhabited by an indigenous tribe. We stayed in a lovely place that used no electricity, was furnished only with hammocks, and I think technically is a treehouse. Carmen said we had to go on a hike in the rainforest and that we needed a tour guide. I felt like this was really tempting fate, what with the guerrilla troops in the rainforest. But my concerns at this point were just met with eye rolls, so I bit my tongue and convinced myself that guerrilla troops would have no interest in abducting a white, blonde American girl. They'd probably want someone handy, with a skill, someone who could make a contribution to the troop, like a (laughs) chef or a seamstress or an arms dealer. Confidence restored by my own incompetence, I bought my ticket. The tour was not cheap, but the tour guide was an indigenous woman, so I convinced myself that I was essentially creating a local economy with my 150 USD contribution. You're welcome, Santa Marta. The next day, we woke up early for the tour. Stephanie and two of the other girls had crippling diarrhea and couldn't go. (laughs) Carmen said she, quote, felt a headache coming on and couldn't go. Carmen opting out at the last minute should have been the first red flag. We arrived at the cluster of stones where we were instructed to meet our tour guide. Because Carmen had instructed us only to bring nice, fancy clothes to impress the locals, I had packed nothing even remotely appropriate for a hike through the rainforest. (laughs) I showed up wearing a bikini under borrowed athletic shorts and a flowy camisole. I had not even brought sneakers, so I wore gold metal thong sandals on my feet. (laughs) I hoped that it would be a leisurely sightseeing walking tour through the rainforest, like the time I'd gone on a, quote, hike in the Everglades, and it turned out to just be a raised wooden walkway with lots of signs. (laughs) The guide arrived, and she was not wearing shoes at all, so I suddenly felt optimistic. Maybe I was overly prepared with my flashy gold sandals. We were told that this was not just any hike. It was a journey, a spiritual journey. Then she began grabbing our water bottles out of our hands and tossing them behind her while repeating, spiritual, spiritual, spiritual. I clutched my water bottle to me like it was an infant and asked her what the hell she was doing. She said, the journey is spiritual. There can be no water, as if this was a sufficient explanation. 
I was like, I feel like that's not a thing. She explained that we must go into the rainforest without water and that while in the rainforest, we would purge all of our negativity and emerge completely pure. (laughs) This was the second red flag. Unfortunately, for my own well-being, I was really into detoxing at the time, so I was super intrigued. I thought it sounded like something Gwyneth Paltrow would do, and I was really excited to get in on the ground floor of a trendy new detox. (laughs) At first, it was going pretty well. We walked for maybe 20 or 30 minutes, and it was fine, but then bam, there was just like this fucking wall of foliage in front of us. It was like dirt, rocks, roots, and plants, but 100% vertical. There was no way around it, only up. For a moment, I thought maybe that's the end of the tour, (laughs) but then it was just like... The tour guide was just gone. It was just like, just like in one fluid motion up and over the damn wall in a flash. So at this point, I stopped counting red flags. The two other girls and I looked at each other. They were the pre-law school friends, so we had not yet bonded sufficiently. They began to climb. Reluctantly, I started trying to climb the wall and trees and shit as well. Keep in mind, I've never climbed anything more challenging than a flight of stairs. My stupid flip-flops kept slipping, and my newly manicured nails that Carmen had insisted upon us getting in Cartagena proved useless for getting a good grip. I estimated I'd made it about halfway up the wall when I looked down and realized that not only was I no more than two feet off the ground, but my entire right tit was hanging out. I cursed my bikini top, I cursed Carmen, I cursed the rainforest, and then I cursed Gwyneth Paltrow just for good measure, and honestly, because she kind of deserves it anyway. I'd made it maybe another foot up the wall when I realized that there could be snakes in it. Snakes are my biggest fear, and this is the literal rainforest. How the possibility of encountering snakes did not dawn on me until this moment, I will never know. For a moment, I froze completely. Then I attempted to scramble up the rest of the wall. At one point, my flip-flop slipped, and the root I was grabbing onto pulled out of the earth, leaving me dangling. I scrambled to find a new grip, and my hand landed on something wet. Snake! I screamed in my head. Snake! 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 I didn't scream it out loud because I was afraid the snake would go into my mouth. (laughs) I don't even think I gripped anything. I think I was like a cartoon character whose pure panic propels them through the air. My sister, a wildlife scientist, later told me that snakes actually feel pretty dry, so it's more likely that I felt a frog or something, but in that moment, it was a snake. Once at the top of the wall, I realized for the first time that I was alone. I had been so caught up in my own struggle and panic that I hadn't noticed when the rest of the group got away from me. There was no clearly defined path either. I was just literally in the rainforest. Fuck. I probably should have gone back down the wall, but at the time I was convinced that I'd just barely escaped death. It would be like escaping a liquor store that was being held up by gunpoint and then walking right back in because you needed directions to get home. (laughs) The tour guide had mentioned that her village was near a river, so I tried to move toward the sound of water. I wandered through the rainforest like it was a damn Target superstore, with that aimless wonderment, no real goal, and a nagging sensation that I was making bad choices. Although in the rainforest, bad choices are a bit more high stakes than splurging and getting new Mossimo cardigans, even though you really should be saving money. Eventually, and I'm sure through no strategy or ingenuity of my own, I stumbled upon the village. I explained my situation and asked for help, forgetting that they had no idea what I was saying. A woman ushered me into her hut and gestured toward a small bench. I sat. There was a fire burning in a pit dug into the floor, and the hut was thick with smoke, making my eyes water, and I had to squint to see. Children ran in and out of the hut, and guinea pigs were scurrying all over the floor. The woman cut a lime in half. She took half and sucked on it, then passed the other half to me, gesturing at me to do the same. I took it and violently tried to suck all of the water out of it, as if to say, Are you happy now, Then I began to feel extremely itchy, like my entire body was crawling with bugs. I looked down and to my horror realized that my entire body was crawling with bugs, tiny bugs, and they were eating me alive. I could feel them on my earlobes, my eyelids, behind my knees, under my boobs. I ran out of the hut with half a lime still in my mouth and hurtled myself towards the river as the villagers watched, totally stunned. I literally jumped into the river, flailing and trying to shake the bugs off me. I covered my body and my face in the cold water and started to feel some relief. 
Right as I looked up from washing my face, I saw a bull upstream about 30 feet in front of me. It was taking a huge dump. My gaze followed the brown cloudy trail until it was fixed on my feet. I'd saved myself from the bugs, but honestly, what bullshit. I spotted the rest of my group further down the river's bank and reunited with them, but I never spoke with them again. The journey out of the rainforest took no less than five hours, during which time I wished out loud more than once that guerrilla troops would abduct me so I wouldn't have to walk anymore. They didn't, so thanks a lot for those unrealistic expectations, State Department. I emerged from the rainforest severely dehydrated, covered in so many bug bites that I looked like a pixelated image, and with third-degree burns on my feet where the sun baked the gold metal hardware on my flip-flops into my foot skin. Contrary to the purpose of a detox, I also emerged with a newly imbued sense of fury and fiery rage, which was compounded when a local tried to sell me my water bottle back. So if you're looking for a detox, I'd skip the rainforest and go for the master cleanse. What a disgusting story. It just doesn't let up. And that Carmen, I don't care if I ever see her again. Well, and I love the voices that Kenley does because they're like... They're different enough from her own voice, so you can tell she's doing a voice, right. but it's still spiritual. spiritual. <laughs> it's not even right. That's not a not, that's not a South American accent. Spiritual, spiritual. You got a little German. Yeah. <laughs> I also got a sense of like Goldie Hawn from Overboard, but yeah. like in the Amazon. I can very much picture mascara, maybe a nail hanging. It's so my brand. <laughs> I don't know why, but I don't get tired of her misery. No, <laughs> no not even a little bit. No. Uh-uh. This is Julie Bashkin, the executive producer. Anyone can and should do what we're doing here. Visit our website, personaldisclosures.com, to make your own disclosures. We have celebrity comedians and best-selling authors who will work with you individually. Whether you're an experienced writer or have never attempted to do this in your life, we can make you funny, smart, and interesting on paper. And now, back to the show for some more provocative stories. Next up, we have Julie again. This particular story is emblematic of the hero's journey. The myth of the eternal return, I think is what Joseph Campbell calls it. It's going back to the scene of the crime. It's returning home to reclaim and re-identify oneself. So that means Julie, on a Fulbright, returns to Minsk, Belarus, where she emigrated when she was a child of, I don't know, six. And this is the first time she's been back in all of those years. And she's a very sophisticated 20-year-old and knows everything except that the country is completely different and nothing like it was when she left. And so no longer does everybody who's anybody speak Russian, but they speak their own state language, Belarusian. So it's not only confusing, but it's, it's like, who, who moved my cheese? It's completely upside down. And above all these mixes, mismatches, she now has a very, very strong identity as an American citizen. This piece is entitled, I'm an American, damn it. On my first day in Minsk in 2003, I was given explicit instructions 
to get on the trolley outside of my apartment at the Great Patriotic War Memorial, ride two stops, and get off at October Station, just next to Lenin's bust, and walk two blocks downriver to the U.S. Embassy. On a cold, gray Tuesday morning in November, I watched as angry and miserable workers rushed to their bureaucratic desk jobs that paid roughly $120 per month, just enough to pay the utilities bills in their two-bedroom Khrushchev-built apartments they shared with their kids, parents, and grandparents. A bride and groom were paying homage to their veteran grandparents who died fighting the Nazis. You know, as one does, kissing and flashing peace signs in front of the eternal flame of the World War II monument. I finally figured out how to purchase a trolley ticket that cost three rubles when the lowest denomination bill I had was 1,000 rubles, and the attendant held up an entire line while yelling, Exact change, lady! at me. I just fanned out my ruble rabbits, all colorful in different sizes, as if it were Monopoly money, and said, here you go, you choose. I finally got on the trolley and confirmed with everyone around me that the October stop was indeed only two stops away. I took out my poppy seed morning bun that I had reluctantly purchased with the ticket so as to get closer to the 1,000 ruble mark and require less change. I was met with some glares from older women and a blue stocking clad lady who looked like she liked to tell people what to do only because rules are rules, muttered, kids these days are so uncultured, through her teeth. Apparently, snacking in public in Belarus was a big faux pas. Two stops later, and all I hear is Kaskuchinskaya on the announcement. Well, that sounds nothing like Oktoberskaya, and so I keep writing. After having passed two more stops, I ask the friendliest person I can spot, a man in a Siberian fur cap, and he says, What, didn't you hear? We passed it two stops ago. Ugh. I get off, cross the street, get back on the trolley going back in the direction from which I came, and again keep my ears peeled for Oktoberskaya, and again do not hear it announced. Having ridden right back to the World War II memorial, I again ask around only to hear the same story. But I only heard Kostrichinskaya. I still haven't heard Oktoberskaya. I protest to the driver. Lady, Kostrichinskaya is how you say Oktoberskaya in Belarusian. Belarusian? I speak Russian. Since when does anyone here speak that language? Lady, what's wrong with you? What country and decade do you think you are in? The Soviet Union? This isn't Perestroika. And just as luck would have it, the ticket patrol enters and grunts at me. Ticket, now. I fumble to find the flimsy paper ticket in my pockets among the receipts and finally hand it over. Lady, why isn't this stamped? Um, I didn't know I was supposed to stamp it. Where and how do I do this? You didn't know? What do you think these stamping machines are? Buttons that send Morse code to the moon? Do you think you buy a ticket and just use the same one to ride the bus for the rest of your life? I stammer and tell the ticket cop my whole life story. Um, I didn't know these things have words written on them that I don't understand. They're not in Russian, and the woman who sold me the ticket was so mad about me not having exact change. I just rushed out without asking her, and the stop wasn't announced in Russian, and so I missed it. A couple behind me is whispering to each other. No, she looks like us and kind of talks like us. Maybe a villager? She grabs the ticket out of my hand, waves me off like a fly, and stamps my ticket. She's most definitely retarded, the driver explains to the ticket cop. Don't you hear the speech impediment? She can't even roll her R's. Yeah, but that's why I'm thinking maybe she is French, the cop says, as if I'm not even there. Flashbacks of horror, of hours of speech pathology training sessions in a cold, white, tiled room in my preschool building when I was five years old flood my memories as a mean Soviet speech therapist with gold teeth sticks toothpicks in my mouth under my tongue to make it touch the roof and yells, Now say Ribba! 
Russian for fish. Liba, I would respond crying. I'm American, goddammit, I yell at the bus driver and the ticket patrol fake cop as I hurry off the trolley, and they say to each other, puzzled, Americanka? Embarrassed and angry, I walk. I get to the embassy, and they tell me to expect to be followed by the Belarusian authorities and to stay away from any opposition activities, which include political activism, advocacy, or any other anti-government activity. So I thought, wow, these guys are paranoid morons. The KGB is no longer the KGB, and they certainly could give two shits about me. And so, of course, I promptly enrolled in liberal arts democracy classes at the European Humanities University, and I joined student youth advocacy groups led by a homosexual, and I attended underground theater productions. A week into my stay, I took out my camera to photograph the White House, where Pops, the dictator, presided over his Hitler Youth wannabe posse. A man in uniform, whom I could swear I saw just the day before, but at this point could very well have been my paranoia planted by the U.S. Embassy staff, tapped me on the shoulder, wagged his finger, shook his head, and said sternly, not allowed. Nothing to worry about, just my own personal KGB protection unit following me around. I feel safer already. I slipped my camera into my front coat pocket. By the time I got off the metro, my camera was no longer in my pocket. It may have been a pickpocketer, but now I no longer doubt Brad, the 35-year-old G.I. Joe in charge of security at the U.S. Embassy, because the pickpocketer may also have been the KGB. A few hours later, well into the evening, as I hosted my first friend, Yulia, we sat watching TV and dipping hard-crusted day-old black bread into some sort of ubiquitous mayonnaise-based deli salad. She introduced me to the Eurovision spectacle, an American idol of sorts, but with professionals, and we were watching the qualifiers. I heard a knock on the door. Pissed off at the prospect of missing the 80s-style glitter and prom dresses singing competition, I walked to the door to discover a policeman, or maybe a KGB guy at this point, who knows. Lady, hurry. We are evacuating the building. It's below freezing out, so grab your coat and let's go. Yeah, right. I'm not going anywhere with you. I'm an American citizen. I will have to call the U.S. Embassy. Lady, I don't care what citizen you are, but right now you need to get out of here. This is a bomb scare. Just my luck. World War II landmines that had not been detonated were discovered that evening by two teens exploring the basement of our building. Get me out of here! Helicopter me out! There are bombs in my building! I screamed into my cell phone to the emergency after hours. Ma'am, there's nothing we can do. Just wait for them to sweep the building. Finally, I climbed back the nine flights of stairs to the safe haven of my apartment. You'd think my Fulbright stipend would get me a nice, clean, modern, newly redone Euro-style apartment. Nope. My Soviet two-bedroom in the Stalin-built building circa 1950 came with its own nursing home smell steeped into the 40-year-old bed and couch. The kitchen contained an old table covered in a plastic tablecloth that seemed to permanently adhere to the table as well as my fingertips. The kitchen also contained the gas tank where the pilot light had to be lit with a match to heat up the hot water so I could take a hot shower. Every time I lit it, I held my breath and prayed my arm wouldn't blow up and my eyebrows would be left intact. And after my shower, I would get out of bed and walk back to the kitchen at least four times to ensure I turned the gas off so as to not blow up the building. A few months into my stay in the apartment, I had been sick for over a month. Turns out I had mold. The mold was the last straw. And finally, my first local friend, Yulia, after hearing me bitch about my living conditions for two weeks, proclaimed, Princessa, 
This will not do for someone of your stature. Then turning serious, she genuinely insisted, pack up your shit this instant. You're moving in with me and Jane. We will be cramped like sardines in my one bedroom, but it will be fun. I fled to Yulia's sanctuary, all the while wondering, maybe I should have done my Fulbright in Germany with the 40 other Americans. It most definitely would have been less foreign. <laughs> oh, Julia, I love that opening. It's like reading Gagol, you know? Like, <laughs> it's so Russian, the whole thing, and the, the sort of outrage and ignorance and absurdity of it all where she has to go back and forth and back and forth and for me that was the height of it it shows how she really doesn't know where she is or how to take care of herself and she, she may be in Russia or Belarus but she's not she may as well be on the dark side of the moon for all that it resembles the past and it really makes for some great comedy and I, I love the, like, the October Revolution Monument stop is followed by the, you know, Catherine the Great stop. I can't wait to hear more about Princessa. I do think you paint a very compelling portrait of yourself as a Principessa before we get to that. You're kind of high and mighty. And so I, I like that she is clueless, all the while having some sort of sensory intelligence, but still no idea. You might have had more fun in Berlin, but yeah. the fact that you did end up going to Minsk makes for a, a much more interesting story. I cannot hear too much of Americanka. Like, that just gives me chills. Okay, next up, we've got Jessica Witkin telling a story in the second person about an afternoon in Bangkok. And what... I only wish you had the pleasure of knowing is how much Jessica is in her own body and is herself in whatever strange place or situation she finds because that's just who she is. She's very rooted and, and very alive. She's just there. So this story is about something that just went bad. She fully felt it from the top of her head to her sad little toes. This is Cut and Tide. Imagine the scene, a hot and sunny afternoon in Bangkok. Imagine yourself the player, a chubby, awkward American gal. You've taken a short visa mandated run away from your life in Burma. You must do this every few months as you are not an above the board employee and you are paid under the table. But you are not unhappy about this. You go out on the streets of Bangkok, wander, eat mangoes, talk to people, get a massage. Not bad. Not bad at all. You're using this time to reassess, wind down, eat, drink, and smoke because you've told yourself when you go back to Burma, back to real life and back to work, you'll stop doing all of those things. Well, you'll still eat, but less. And healthy, right? All your food from now on will be healthy. You're going to be a beacon of health and well-being. But first, a few nights in Bangkok. The tides are turning, slowly. The work tides, the life tides. You figure another change is in order. A haircut. Why not? New do, new you. You've done this before. Hair is adaptable, like you. So you decide to go for it. 
You look around for a salon. There are plenty. Which one will it be? You're not too nervous. You've had your hair cut in a foreign country before by people who don't speak the same language as you. It'll be fine. You find a place. A place run by a woman with a patch over her eye. Most of the staff are ladyboys, and they prefer the term ladyboy to transgender. You talk with them about this. It's an enlightening conversation. Your stylist asks what you want. You say a little shorter. She laughs and begins to wash your hair. But there's a problem. There seems to be no shampoo. Your head is wet, in the sink. Glasses are off, blind to the world. But you can hear. Thai is being spoken. The English word shampoo is being thrown around, but there are no hands rubbing suds into your wet hair. You hear empty bottles being picked up and put down, drawers opening, being rummaged through. Eventually, the thick, sweet-smelling liquid is squeezed onto your scalp. Quick hands massage your head, and you begin to feel yourself relax. You sit in front of a mirror. Again, your stylist asks you what you want. Just a little shorter. You motion towards your chin. Chin length, just a little shorter. She laughs. You take off your glasses, a little nervous, but hoping for the best. You're trying to be positive. You've worked hard at becoming a positive person. She begins to cut. Through blurry vision, you can tell that this is not going in the direction you intended. The three Middle Eastern businessmen sitting behind you getting foot massages have their opinions about what is happening. <laughs> One of them begins speaking to you in French. You don't understand. He asks you if you speak French. You say you do not, but internally you smile and are secretly happy that he thought you were the kind of person who would speak French. <laughs> In English, he tells you that the back is too shaggy and not even. The stylist attempts to fix this. You put your glasses on again. You are not thrilled with what you see. In the mirror, you can see the businessmen feel the same. Their Arabic conversation is about this, or so you believe, as the hand gestures and eyes are focused on you, the back of your head and the bad haircut that has recently taken up residence there. The stylist laughs. Haircut like a man, she says, and laughs again. You smile, but inside you are not smiling. Haircut like a man. Your worst fear come to life. You look like a fat man in a dress. A fat man in a dress, and standing next to the lady boys does not help because they all look gorgeous. Tall, slender versions of ultra-femininity, and you... Short, squat, with a dump truck face and a bad haircut. A fat man Ugh. in a dress. You go outside and smoke a cigarette. You feel the need for one after that. The ladyboys smoking in front of the shop smile at you. You ask if they like your new haircut. One of them gives you a too-wide smile. Sassy, she says. You do not believe her. You know what sassy means. Sassy is code. Sassy means, oh girl, no. You sigh heavily and walk away. A fat man in a dress, out and about, on a hot and sunny afternoon in Bangkok. Yeah. Yes. Mm. <laughs> oh, dear gosh. I just love the, the beat of this story. Mm -hmm. The way it uses the second person. Yeah. I can't believe she pulls that off. Absolutely. You, 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 you. And it's mm -hmm. in the present tense. Mm -hmm. It's cool. Mm -hmm. And it makes it all the more real. Mm -hmm. Immediate. Immediate and believable. Like, it's not a yarn. It's not anecdotal. It's it's like a, a slice of Bangkok life or whatever. There's, there's something life. about the second person that 
really eliminates the distance between me as a listener and the narrator. It's like, you are a fat man wearing a dress, not, oh, the person is telling the story feels that way. No, I feel that way Mm -hmm. because I am the one in the story. Mm -hmm. I I agree that the way she pulls it off is, is really amazing. Is that the point of it, to put you in her position? I I would guess so, Nancy. I I mean, I don't know. I think it's part of the alienation factor that she feels like a you. She doesn't feel like an I because she's other. It's almost as if the you is her talking to herself in her own head, (laughs) Um, like the bicameral brain or something where the you is her talking to herself but in the story it has the effect of I'm in it I'm there it's me putting it in second person makes you actually wonder whether or not all of this is in her head none of them might actually be laughing at her or talking about her it might just all have she might have all concocted all of that because she didn't like her own haircut But what is it about American travelers being taken advantage of or mocked, right? We all feel in these foreign lands like they're mocking us. Well, uh, for obvious reasons, yeah. (laughs) We are mockable. We are obscene in our privilege, Mm -hmm. in our unconsciousness, Mm -hmm. in our... Oblivious, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also uh, let she who has never made fun of the German tourists in the loop in Chicago cast the first stone. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, well, now I just make fun of them walking through Times Square. (laughs) Our next story is once again from Bridget, the girl who learns nothing and rationalizes everything and makes you laugh the entire time. She's doing everything half-assed backwards and thinking. She's a little like a blonde chicken little, catastrophizing everything. Anyway... This is a travel story about a Catholic girl from a western suburb in a sorority down at the University of Illinois who gets a four-month international stay in Verona, Italy, where they have blonde Italians. And she heard that they like blondes, and she's like, far out. I'm going to meet Italian men. It's going to be fabulous. So this particular tale is called La Bene. That's Italian. Scene, Verona, Italy, fall 2002. My friend Natalie cut her finger one night while we were cooking. It would not stop bleeding, and we realized she needed stitches. When we got to the hospital, it felt like we were time-warped back to the 60s. It looked identical to the hospital from the movie Girl Interrupted. (laughs) White walls, fluorescent lighting, and some random paintings of Jesus. There were all these older Italian people lying on cots, moaning for help, but the nurses would just pass them by. The head nurse at the front desk had on a white apron and a matching white cap. She was smoking a cigarette directly underneath a sign that read, Vietato Fumare, which means no smoking. (laughs) While Sarah, the only one of us that really spoke Italian, explained to the nurse that Natalie needed stitches, the nurse promptly crushed out her cigarette and said, we don't do hands. 
<laughs> well, that solves that. When you travel to Italy, things don't often make sense, and you learn to just go with the flow. It's how Italians live. Sure, they get dramatic and they argue from time to time, but at the end of the day, they're really laid back, and all in all, it just seems to work out for them. They take two-hour naps every afternoon during the work week. It's amazing. Why don't I live there? I have been asking myself this question for 18 years. I fell in love with Italy when I was 17. Sarah's family invited me on their two-week family vacation, and my mom claims that I came back a changed person. I love the culture, the language, the food, the people, everything. I also love the freedom. Servers offered us wine without blinking an eye at our extremely young-looking faces, and we smoked cigarettes at every chance we had. My eyes were open, and I realized there was a huge world outside of Lyons Township High School. I knew after that trip, I would be back. I made it a top priority to study abroad while I was in college, and in August of 2002, my junior year, I was off to Verona for four months. Now, when I told people I was going to Italy, they all told me, oh, you better watch out for those Italian men because they love blondes. I was so excited about this idea. I would fantasize about all my Italian boyfriends knocking at my door. Well, the only knocking I got was actually tapping, and it was tapping on my shoulder over and over again of Italian men asking if I could take a picture of them with my roommate, Maria. Maria was like a Disney princess at the Magic Kingdom. She was like this beautiful specimen that the Italians had never seen before in the flesh. Maria is American, but her parents are from Pakistan, and the Italian men were obsessed with her. She was getting requests for pictures, and I was getting requests from Italians to do shots with them. You, Bridget, you love beer. You are like a Viking, Marco told me one night. Marco was extremely good looking. He had perfect features, tan skin, and light green eyes. I loved that he was talking to me, but he... Wait, did he just call me a Viking? Does anyone want another Bridget beer? He asked the group as he got up from the big wooden table. Oh my God, I lost so much weight when I studied abroad, my friend Amy told me. She was three years older than me and we worked together the summer before I went to Verona. You walk everywhere. You will be so skinny when you get back. It's actually impossible to gain weight. Well, the bar, the home of the Bridget Beater, was two blocks from my apartment. The Bridget beers were not like Miller Lights that we drink at U of I. Italy does not have light products. They were Hogardens, a huge heavy wheat beer made for a Viking or a 20-year-old American girl. Those Hogardens combined with pasta, pizza, wine, cigarettes, no exercise, a nearby McDonald's that had the best dopio cheeseburgers I've ever had, did indeed make it possible to gain weight, Amy. I called home on Thanksgiving, and my mom passed the phone to my grandpa, Bapa, as we called him. Sweetheart, those dagos like to eat. You better watch it. Your mom said you put on some pounds. Oh, okay. Well, happy Thanksgiving to you, too, Bapa. <laughs> you know what, Bapa? If you think I like to eat like those dagos, wait till you hear about how I drink like the Germans in Munich. You know what I notice is how... Bridget does intel in her life. Like, she's always asking a girl who's, like, three years older than she is, okay, so what is it like when you go abroad? And she's always gathering the lowdown on what she anticipates to be the next stage of development. I think she's a wise child. She's an intelligent fool. She stoops to conquer. What do you, what do you think, Julie? Do you think she is as stupid as she sounds? So I think I think Bridget is sneaky smart. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking a, a, a lot about this because Bridget could be 
easily mistaken for what we call a basic bitch. Oh. Sorry, Bridget, I just called you a basic bitch. But that there's more than meets the eye there, right? So she's this girl who is blonde, very Americana, grew up in western suburbs of Chicago, very Norman Rockwell type of area, as we heard her describe in Adolescent Angst, mm-hmm. with these perfect Catholic homes and these perfect Catholic people. Solid middle class. Solid salt-of-the-earth types. And then she goes to a solid Big Ten state school and she's probably in a sorority there mm-hmm. and probably like a tridalt or something i'm probably getting mm-hmm. that right bridget's not allowed to confirm or deny <laughs> <laughs> and then she takes herself out of the situation and is now immersed in italy but none of that is actually an accurate description of bridget bridget is witty she's hilarious she's self-deprecating and her humor is really really smart and she makes shit fart humor smart. She makes cultural immersion humor smart. She makes taking herself out of a situation where she's comfortable and putting herself in situations where she gets in trouble. And that mm-hmm. happens to her a lot. We heard that in Bad Romance. We heard that here. And and she gets out of the trouble, but not before getting herself in some more trouble first. Right. And it always is done in a very witty way. My mother used to say about me, you're with who's ever going. <laughs> and that's kind of an, an actual sign of intelligence, that mm-hmm. your ability to sink and swim in whatever situation you find yourself, because it's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And you know that the real experience of life is out there it's outside it's it's in the world somehow and any opportunity to get out there she takes this podcast was created by me julie bashkin in partnership with alana kip and nancy beckett and the second city training center sound engineering recording and original music scores created by gravity studios in chicago Visit personaldisclosures.com for tips and tricks on how to make your own personal disclosures and to access exclusive personal training and group events with famous best-selling authors and comedians you've seen on TV. Make sure to follow us on Instagram where you may find embarrassing vintage photos from our youth. And please share with your friends and leave a review on Stitcher and iTunes. It helps us out tremendously to get the word out and to bring you more laughs and maybe even some tears every week with new episodes.